Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another Taming the Shrew podcast. Today, I am lucky to be joined by Dr. I.C. Cords himself, Dr. Stephen Carlton, educator, anatomist, airway guru extraordinaire, and we're going to be covering some common tracheostomy complications. Now, first of all, we're not going to cover, we're not going to cover really the basics of what a tracheostomy is, what types of tubes there are, how the tubes work, because um, this is all going to be covered by a resident lecture later in the year. Um, I don't really want to steal their thunder too much. Um, but what we are going to cover is what to do with the bleeding tracheostomy site, what to do with the dislodged tracheostomy, and what to do with the stenosed tracheostomy site. Uh, so let's first start with bleeding tracheostomy sites. So bleeding from a tracheostomy uh, site accounts for about 20% of ED tracheostomy visits. Um, and while a large chunk of these presentations are for minor bleeding, any bleeding around a patient's airway can be especially hair-raising experience, especially when the specter of a life-threatening bleed exists. So let's first cover what is the demigorgon of tracheostomy bleeding, the tracheoanonymate fistula, the TI fistula. Now, TI fistulas account for about 2% of patients uh, with the tracheostomy, and about 85% of these bleeds occur in the first postoperative month. So why is the TI fistula so scary? Well, there's about a 50 to 75% mortality, even with prompt identification and management. So first, Dr. Carlton, talk to us a little bit about the relation of the anonymous artery anatomically to the airway and the tracheostomy site. The anonymous artery in the vast majority of people is the first branch off of the aortic arch, and it gives rise to the subclavian artery and the right carotid artery in most people. In a small fraction of people, it also gives rise to the left internal carotid artery. It lies behind the superior margin of the sternum and the manubrium at its root, and at the point where it crosses immediately anterior to the trachea with only a small amount of connective tissue in between, you're at a level of about the superior portion of the manubrium or at the level of the jugular notch. So anatomically, it is immediately anterior to the trachea with very little interposed connective tissue. Just anterior to the anominate artery is the uh, superior vena cava, um, and then there's just a small amount of connective tissue that's interposed between the superior vena cava and the posterior surface of the manubrium of the sternum. And you know, it, when you look at cross-sections of these and uh, when you look at the images where uh, people are sort of trying to control the bleeding, it almost looks as if the innominate artery is kind of right where the tip of the tracheostomy tube would sit. Is that about right? That is very much the case. So right around the tip of the tracheostomy tube, and it's presumably because of erosion of either the balloon or the tip of the tracheostomy tube on the anterior surface of the trachea, that causes the ulceration and then causes the erosion into the anomalous artery immediately anterior to it. Gotcha. So <clears throat> how, do we, how do we identify that our patient has a TI fistula and, and what do we do about it? The, this is challenging from a, a standpoint of trying to identify it based on physical findings. Um, an important thing to recognize is that the initial bleed can actually be a relatively minor bleed, but it should be bright red bleeding that occurs in that situation. But you can't count on this bleeding from the patient's tracheostomy site not being a tracheonominate fistula just because the volume of bleeding is low. You could kind of think of this the way you think of a subarachnoid hemorrhage where you can have a sentinel bleed initially that is kind of the premonitory symptom before the patient has an exsanguinating bleed or a bleed which would cause them to drown. So you can't count on the volume of the bleeding, but the bleeding should be bright red if it's from a tracheonominate fistula. The site is actually fairly uh, inaccessible to physical examination. Um, you don't want to remove the trach uh, tracheostomy tube if it's functioning. 
uh, because the tracheostomy tube may be tamponading the bleeding in this situation. However, the uh, site of the bleeding may be on the proximal side of the balloon, and oftentimes you can pull the trach and the balloon back slightly and see whether that causes a diminution of the bleeding, indicating that you might be uh, tamponading it a little bit. So that can be a clue that it's a TI fistula, though it's not uh, diagnostic of it being a TI fistula. It also may be difficult to access that area with uh, an endoscope uh, because the site of the bleeding is so close to the site of the tracheostomy tube and because the lumen of the trachea is so narrow that being able to manipulate a endoscope tip to the point where you can see the site of bleeding is going to be difficult. And this is hampered further by the fact that the thing that defeats most endoscopy is material that could get on the lens of the endoscope. And with a tracheoesophageal fistula, if there's slight continued bleeding or if there's any clot in the airway, the chance that you're going to have something get on the tip of the endoscope and occlude your view is fairly high. The definitive diagnosis is made with RJ orthography. Um, so if you have a high clinical suspicion, and you should if you're within a month of the patient's tracheostomy uh, surgery and the patient has had bright red bleeding, an arch aortogram is the thing that would most likely make the diagnosis, both by showing the proximity of the anometer artery to the trach and potentially showing a small leak or, or, uh, or a contained hemorrhage within the area of the uh, ulceration between the trachea and the anometer artery. Excellent. So uh, let's say we, we do identify that there's a, a, a TI fistula. That, and in this particular patient, let's say that there is continued brisk bleeding and there's really not time to get that arch aortography. You think that it's a TI fistula. What can you do to help sort of stop this bleeding? If the patient's having an exsanguinating bleed, you don't have the luxury of being able to call a consultant down and you have to kind of exercise desperate measures for desperate times. One of the first things that you can do is to attempt to tamponade the bleeding. And the way that you would tamponade the bleeding would be by hyperinflating the trach cuff and essentially trying to put almost as much air into it as the cuff would tolerate without rupturing. And there are some descriptions of people putting you know, 50 milliliters of air into a tracheostomy cuff. I personally don't think that the balloon on most shyly trachs is large enough to accommodate 50 cc's of air. But I would continue to inflate the cuff until I recognized that there was some reduction in the amount of bleeding. Now, that's only going to be helpful if all of the bleeding that's occurring is either coming out from the tracheostomy tube itself or coming out from around the tracheostomy tube. But in point of fact, if the patient is in a seated or semi-seated position, the vast majority of the bleeding is going to go down into their lungs. And the only way you're going to see that bleeding is when the patient subsequently coughs it out through the tracheostomy tube. So one of the hard things about this is knowing when you're actually tamponading the bleeding. Because if they've inhaled a, you know, a half liter of blood and they're still coughing that through the tube, you're not going to instantaneously recognize any decrease in the amount of active bleeding that's still going on. But the first step would be to hyperinflate the balloon, then vigorously suction the patient and see whether there is a diminution in the amount of blood that you're seeing coming out from around the trach or from the trach itself. Usually, the site of the bleeding may be just a little bit proximal to where the tip of the trach is and where the balloon is. So the other thing you can do is apply a very gentle traction to the trach tube itself. That will also tend to pull the balloon against the anterior wall of the trachea, which may be more effective in tamponading the bleeding. But there's risk associated with that because if the mucosal surface is slippery 
and you pull and you decannulate the patient, then all of your problems are going to be worse because then you're going to have a patient who's desperate to breathe, who may not have a patent airway now because of liquid in the airway and clot in the airway, and who you're going to now have to put a new tracheostomy tube through a bleeding wound and potentially scrape the tip of that tracheostomy tube past a site that is already eroded and bleeding, making things worse. Yeah, that sounds appropriately terrifying. Um, so let's move on to maybe less frightening causes of bleeding. So early in the postoperative course of these patients, incisional bleeding is not uncommon. It's also common for granulation tissue to develop in these patients, and with a local irritation of the tracheostomy tube, this granulation tissue can become a common source of bleeding as well. Now, in the assessment of these patients, one should obviously look to the surface of the skin surrounding the stoma site to identify any sources of bleeding, but she should also use a flexural endoscope to assess the trachea as well, because patients can have bleeding from tracheitis, tracheal ulcers, or even could have hemoptysis from a bronchial source, or if a tracheoesophageal fistula is present, you can even have GI bleeding as a source. The big point of all this is to emphasize that you really need to conduct a full exam on these patients. Um, and if you really haven't scoped them, really haven't assessed for all sources of bleeding. So the treatment of surface bleeding, either incisional or from granulation tissue, is somewhat less dramatic than uh, controlling a tracheoenominate uh, bleed. It's usually a, can be accomplished by packing or using some silver nitrate to cauterize a small source of bleeding. Uh, Dr. Carl, do you have any other tips or advice on how to assess or control bleeding for these less severe patients that maybe have granulation tissue or incisional bleeding? Yeah, if the tracheostomy is fresh, it's happened within a week to 10 days or so, the patient may already have or may still have stay sutures in place. And because you can grip those stay sutures and pull upward to deliver the wound in the trachea itself more closely in approximation to the skin, you may be able to better visualize the entire tract that the trach passes through and therefore be able to identify a site of bleeding. But you have to be careful when you're pulling on stay sutures because the uh, cartilage of the uh, tracheal rings is not robust and you can pull sutures through the cartilage if you're not careful. Examining the entire margin of the wound by lifting the trach shield up slightly off of the neck so that you can see underneath it and applying tamponade with your finger to see if you can arrest bleeding is sometimes a clue to whether the bleeding is occurring from the margins of the wound as opposed to a deeper site. And obviously, if the bleeding is coming out from around the trach as opposed to actually coming through the trach, it's much more likely to be bleeding relating to the wound or relating to irritation of the uh, trach at the site that it uh, perforates through the patient's uh, tracheal wall. Um, So I think just a very thorough physical examination is the first step on this, being sure to lift up the trach shield and look beneath it to attempt to tamponade with your fingers. If the patient's having a lot of discomfort, you can probably also get useful diagnostic information, since you're going to be manipulating the trach anyway, by injecting a little bit of lidocaine with epinephrine around the patient's tracheostomy wound margin. And if that tamponades and stops the bleeding, you've answered the question about whether this is wound bleeding or whether this is deeper bleeding. Ultimately, if the bleeding doesn't stop with compressive measures on the patient's skin or local measures around the patient's wound, it's again going to come down to endoscopy. So you're going to have to put a, a diagnostic nasopharyngoscope in all likelihood down the patient's tracheostomy tube and attempt to visualize a site of bleeding or a large piece of eroded granulation tissue But again, the same problems exist with this as we discussed for tracheoenominate fistula, which is that the maneuverability of the tip of the endoscope inside the trachea is limited by the narrow diameter of the airway and by the inability to hyperflex the scope to get a backward view of where the trach is actually potentially touching up against the tracheal wall and causing the irritation of the bleeding site. But 
some information is better than no information, and it's best to take a look and try to get the best information you can uh, to try to determine whether the, uh, the site appears to be a, a mucosal site from granulation tissue or an erosion versus something else. Excellent. So let's move on to the dislodged tracheostomy tube. You know, we've all seen these patients in the emergency department. Much like seeing feeding tube problem on the epic track board, seeing trach problem on the epic track board creates this weird dualistic response, in me at least. When I see these cheap complaints, I know that for some portions of these patients, this will be a lightning-fast ED visit. I mean, for feeding, food, feeding tubes, if you have your supplies together, you can replace those while the patient's still on the transport stretcher and send those patients directly back from whence they came. Now, I also know, however, that for some of these patients, it's going to be a nightmare of prolonged procedural time while I struggle to acquire the correct supplies and struggle to replace their displaced tracheostomy tube. But before we get to the specifics, I think it's really important to highlight a fact that helped me shed a lot of my fears on taking care of these patients, and that is at the end of the day, if you get into trouble with these patients, you can always, well, almost always, put an ET tube into the tracheostomy site and buy yourself some time. Once you have time, you can really engage your consultants and develop a plan to definitively replace a dislodged tracheostomy tube. So let's move on to the case of a recently displaced trach. You're working in the ED, a patient presents from a local skilled nursing facility for a tracheostomy tube that's fallen out. Dr. Carlton, as you're assessing this patient and talking with the MS and maybe with a referring facility, what are the key historical points to identify in these patients? The first key point is whether the patient's had a laryngectomy and has a tracheostomy or whether they've had a tracheotomy. Uh, Because if they've had a tracheostomy and a laryngectomy, there's no longer a connection from the patient's mouth uh, oropharynx and hypopharynx to the patient's respiratory system. And therefore, any kind of intervention that would involve coming through the patient's nose or mouth is out. That isn't an option. Um, if the patient has indeed had a tracheotomy, where they have a tracheotomy tube, but they still have a connected aerodigestive tract proximal to that, you still have the option of managing the patient through their mouth if there is a problem replacing the tracheotomy tracheostomy tube itself and being able to manage the patient with an orally or nasally placed endotracheal tube. Um, The historical point uh, that you have to understand with regard to that is what was the reason why the original tracheostomy was placed. If the tracheostomy was placed because the patient has obstructive sleep apnea, you not only have the luxury of having some time to work, but you know that there's not going to be any kind of an anatomical impediment Uh, to doing orotracheal um, evaluation of the patient. But if the reason for the patient's tracheostomy is that the patient had some kind of an upper airway obstructive process or because they had vocal cord dysfunction, then you may not be able to exploit the advantage of using the patient's upper airway as an avenue to getting a tube back into them should you have problem replacing the tracheostomy itself. The next historical feature that's absolutely critical is how mature the trache is. If the trachea is within 7 to 10 days after it's been placed, um, the tract likely has not matured, and there is a high risk of when you attempt to force a relatively blunt tube through the opening that you may disconnect the trachea from the overlying soft tissue. Um, now, most of the time, you're going to have a clue that this is the case because the patient should still have stay sutures in place if they're within 7 to 10 days, and it is usually the ENT surgeon who does the first trach replacement on these patients, and it is at that time that the stay sutures are removed. But if the patient still has stay sutures in place, you want to be sure you know where they are, that you at least have them laid out so you can keep a grip on them, so that if you are attempting to place another trach in the patient, you can maintain outward traction so you don't disconnect 
the trach itself from the patient's overlying skin and soft tissue. So the main things you need to know is why was the trach placed, how long ago was the trach placed, was it a tracheostomy with a laryngectomy, or was it a tracheotomy, and therefore the patient still has a proximal common aerodigestive tract. Awesome. So we, let's say we find out that this is a mature tracheostomy site and that the tube fell out an hour prior to their arrival in the emergency department. And so we're intent on simply replacing this, uh, this tube that had fallen out uh, with an identical one from our stores. So, Dr. Carlton, talk us through your approach on replacing these tubes. So if we have a tracheotomy tube that is identical to the one that the patient had, or if the patient brings their own tube in and we can clean it, and it's a mature tract, replacing it is actually relatively easy, but there are still some things to be careful about. The site may still be sensitive, so the patient may have pain when you reinsert, and there's absolutely nothing wrong in my mind with doing some uh, judicious local anesthesia to the area. And I mean local anesthesia using infiltrative anesthesia on the margins of the tract, just as though you were dealing with any other wound. The other thing you would definitely want to do would be to anesthetize the patient's tracheal mucosa as best you could. And rather than counting on doing this by just using 2% xylocaine jelly to lubricate the tracheostomy tube, I would be more inclined to hose down their tracheal mucosa using a mucosal atomizing device so that they don't feel the tube moving against the tracheal mucosa when you try to insert it. Then inserting it itself... With a mature site, the tracheotomy tube is designed to be inserted through a mature site, and it has an obturator that makes the tip kind of bullet-shaped that facilitates that, and it also puts that tip right up against the sharp margin of the end of the trach tube itself, which makes it much less likely that it's going to scrape mucosa off the tracheal wall and cause a false passage. So what I would do is I would remove the trach, I would deflate the balloon under negative pressure after assuring that the balloon is confident, competent, after assuring that the balloon was competent, I would lubricate the trach itself well, and then I would take out the inner cannula and replace it with the obturator. Then holding the trach shield between my index finger and my long finger with my thumb on the butt end of the obturator, I would position the tip of the tracheotomy tube over the trach stoma. I would gently insert it in a direction that was perpendicular to the long axis of the airway, and then as soon as it made it through the tracheal wall, I would turn the tube so that it was pointing in a more caudal direction and complete sliding it in until the shield was flush up against the patient's neck. At that point, you can remove the obturator, replace it with the inner cannula, ask the patient to breathe, determine whether they're getting good air movement through the tracheotomy tube itself, and if so, then you can go ahead and anchor the tube in place with one of the Velcro trach ties that we have or one of the more uh, primitive but still functional uh, pieces of trach tape. Let's move on to the stenosis trach site. So these are the patients where the process of replacement is not so simple, where you go to replace the tracheostomy tube with an identical one, and it's just not going in. The stobocyte is clearly stenosed down, and there's just no way that original tube is going in. So Dr. Carlton, talk us through your approach on these patients. So in this circumstance, you're going to need to dilate up the tracheostomy site. I keep saying tracheostomy. <laughs> in this case, you're going to need to dilate up the tracheotomy site to be able to get a new tube into place. And this is probably not best accomplished using smaller, shyly tracheotomy tubes. Rather, I think this is best accomplished using a series of pediatric endotracheal tubes and probably choosing pediatric endotracheal tubes that happen to be cuffed. So in this circumstance, I again think you would prep up the site so that it was clean. You might consider doing infiltrative local anesthetic on the margins of the site 
so that it's not uncomfortable for the patient when you're manipulating it. Although in this case, I would caution you from doing the infiltrative anesthesia right along the margins of the wound, just because it may tend to make the wound margins more edematous and puffy, and it may make the site more difficult to, to access. Therefore, I would do more of a field block in this circumstance distant from the site so that I didn't cause any local wound complications but still gave the patient a measure of comfort when we were manipulating their wound. Next, I would try to hose uh, aqueous lidocaine down through the stoma into the patient's airway if it was at all possible. If the patient is still breathing through the trach, this should be possible, and that will make it easier for them to tolerate your manipulation of their airway mucosa itself when you're inserting this series of tubes. You would want to gather up all of your tubes. You would want to be sure that you had viscous xylocaine available to uh, lubricate those tubes. And then you would begin inserting the tubes in a series from the uh, small, you know, perhaps even as small as a three to four millimeter tube. And then when you inserted the tube into the trach site, you would want to pass it distally to the point where you had just buried the balloon and it can no longer be seen. And then you could consider gently inflating the balloon and pulling the trach back up to dilate the site further. You would follow this with a tube of the next larger size, then a tube of the next larger size, then a tube of the next larger size, until you were passing an endotracheal tube that was similar in outside diameter to the tracheotomy tube that you wished to replace it with. At this point, you would want to get out the appropriately sized tracheotomy tube, but not attempt to place that tracheotomy tube by passing it directly through the wound with an obturator in place. Rather, you would want to do this replacement in Seldinger fashion. The best thing to use for a Seldinger replacement would be an endoscope, because then you can actually be looking at the patient's carina. You can be assured that your uh, airway stent is in place and that you're not going to have a false passage. And then you could pass the tracheotomy tube that had been previously loaded onto the endoscope down through the patient's wound and into their airway. There are other alternatives if you don't have endoscopy available, however. You could pass a bougie through the wound. Um, being mindful that the bougie tip is relatively stiff and you would want to be very careful during insertion, you could pass a reintubation catheter through the wound, or you were fin if you were in more desperate circumstances where you didn't have these kind of adjuncts available, you could use a piece of oxygen tubing, you could use a piece of suction tubing, or you could use a uh, small uh, pediatric feeding tube or nasogastric tube. The one thing you want to be absolutely sure of, though, is that the outer diameter of whatever device you're using for a stent must be significantly smaller, probably by at least a half millimeter, than the inside diameter of the tracheotomy tube with the uh, intercannula removed. And you want to be sure that you lubricate the stent that you're going to be using well so that the tracheotomy tube passes over it with ease. <clears throat> Excellent. Thanks, Dr. Carlton, so much for uh, helping us work through how to take care of these tracheostomy complications. And as a recap, bleeding from tracheostomy sites, tracheotomy sites can be from surface sources such as granulation tissue or incisional bleeding, but it can also be from a TI fistula, you know, bronchial source of bleeding, or even a GI bleed. Performing a complete physical exam with the endoscopic evaluation of the trachea and having a high index of suspicion for an arterial source of bleeding if there's greater than 10 mL of blood loss. You know, replacing a recently displaced tracheostomy tube or tracheotomy tube can be easy, especially if it's a mature tract. Generously lube the tip of the new tracheostomy tube, start with the tube perpendicular to the trachea, insert the tip into the stoma, and advance while rotating into the parallel. Confirm your placement with a flex flexible endoscope. Replacing a tracheostomy tube into a stenosed trach site can be much more difficult. 
first, lidocaine is your friend in the, and the patient's friend in these procedures. You know, start with small cuffed ET tubes <clears throat> or even uncuffed ET tubes and sequentially dilate uh, by inflating balloons of the ET tubes in the stoma and pulling them out. Eventually, you'll be able to pass an ET tube with an outer diameter similar to the size of the patient's original, original tracheostomy tube which should then allow you to insert the trach tube of an identical size to the one that fell out, advancing over a flexible endoscope so that you can evaluate the airway and ensure that there's not any significant bleeding or uh, that you have not created a false passage during the course of the procedure. And finally, if you run into trouble, you can always put an endotracheal tube into the stoma and oxygenate and ventilate the patient through that while you plan for definitive management. Can I make one addendum? Please. The one thing to be mindful of if you're using an endotracheal tube is the length of the tube. Um, at the point where you are entering a patient's tracheostoma, you are several centimeters distal to their vocal cords, and the trachea in adults is somewhere between 10 and 20 centimeters in length, depending on the body habitus of the person. So you want to be careful not to pass an endotracheal tube too deeply when you use it as a replacement for a tracheotomy tube for fear of being down the patient's right main stem bronchus. In general, if you bury the balloon one centimeter or two centimeters to the point where you can no longer see it, that's deep enough. If you're going purely by length, you probably don't want to insert that tube any more than seven centimeters into the wound. Well, uh, thank you again, Dr. Carlton. Uh, this is an excellent time talking through these patients, uh, and we'll see you uh, next time on the Taming the Shrew podcast.